the Buddha in the daily subjects for contemplation said, every practitioner should constantly reflect, I am subject to aging illness and death. I will be separated from what is dear to me. My life is entirely shaped by my actions. So, Marana Sati, which is the reflection on one's death, one's mortality, one's frailty, uh, the Buddha was at the center of the Buddha's quest for liberation. It's said that up until he was 28, uh, he lived in the splendor of his palace near, near Kapalivatsu, and then, around age 28, while traveling through Kapalivatsu, he came up close to first uh, someone who was very old, someone who was very sick, and finally a corpse. And this confrontation with life's inevitable outcomes deeply shook him and essentially motivated, impelled his leaving home and his quest for unconditional peace of mind. So I'm going to read from uh, the Pali Canon for a moment where he talks about that. He says, While I was rich and surrounded by splendid objects and beautiful people, I was living in ignorance. For though I am mortal and not immune to death, when I saw a corpse, I, like so many others, was horrified as if I was oblivious to the fact that I too would die. To be so easily horrified means I was living in an undignified way. So I set forth to seek liberation. So straightforwardly, the Buddha is saying this kind of visceral disgust of death, this aversion to it, means that he was in some way delusional as is anyone who has that kind of visceral uh, repulsion of it, because we are all on our way to that state. And in fact, we are probably the only species that lives with this narrative contemplation of our own finality. So what makes us, in a way, very special as a species is the fact that we live in the shadow of our own demise. In another sutta called the Marana Sati Sutta, the Buddha, it's one of my favorites, the Buddha says, so to a gathering of practitioners, he says, how often do you reflect on your own death? And one practitioner says, oh, I do it at least once every day. And he feels pretty good, or she feels pretty good about that answer. And then another practitioner says, well, I think about my mortality every morning. And then another one says, every night. And then someone says, with every meal. And then someone says, with every breath. And so the Buddha responds, okay, you batch that said once every day, every morning, every night, every meal, not good enough. You who said you know, with every breath or every bite that you chew, that's about the ticket. That's about the right amount. Now, if we take that literally... The idea that with every breath we take, we have to be thinking about our mortality, I would submit that that's a rather extreme uh, idea. But the Buddha is not here referring to what we would now call explicit or conceptual ideas. 
he's talking about an implicit felt understanding that we carry around in our hearts. Explicit knowledge is facts, which we can bring up, talk about, and then put away. For example, we know that the Empire State Building is in New York, and if somebody can ask you what city it's in, you'll say it's in Manhattan, New York, and then you'll forget about it. You don't walk around with that knowledge ever-present in your mind. But there are implicit understandings that are there all the time. They're the inclinations that guide you and guide how you perceive the world. And they're held not in the left hemisphere of the brain, but in the right hemisphere. And they're the beliefs that guide your behaviors. So, for example, if you've been dumped painfully from a relationship and you, after a number of years, get into a new relationship, your implicit mind might very well tell you Relationships are places where I could get hurt. I have to take it slowly. I have to be uh, on the lookout for signs that the person is not available for a relationship. I have to uh, essentially um, be uh, not rush in. So that's an implicit belief that's created by actual experience. If one of us has been through a sudden shocking loss, a partner or a family member or a friend, it completely changes their understanding for a while of death and mortality versus somebody who simply knows that they will die. The person who knows that they will die will bring up the information, be able to think about it with a shudder, and then will push it back down into their unconscious, and it won't be a part of their active daily life reflections. Um, the person who's been through or has seen death up close or has uh, acknowledged it in a meaningful way will have that wisdom available with every breath because it's always there. It doesn't go away. And that's the kind of understanding that the Buddha is talking about here. He's not talking about we have to bring up the thought with every breath. He's talking about we have to know it in our hearts, our mortality, and we have to bring that understanding into our lives in meaningful ways. Now, why do we need to do this? I've broken it down to a number of um, uh, perspectives of why this practice is so important. The first is that the very foundation of any spiritual practice should be the truth. It shouldn't be fairy tales. It shouldn't be leaps of faith. It should be, at least from a Buddhist perspective, the truth. The Buddha's first noble truth is that in life there are times when we suffer. We experience <coughs> losses, frustrations, grieving. We experience difficult times. And it's from that wisdom that the Buddha developed a course towards happiness. But you have to start with the undeniable truths of existence if you're going to, in any way, meaningfully have a spiritual foundation. Now, many people get faith or a sense of uh, alleviation, pacification from spiritual paths that don't look at the truth, that posits that there are 
gods with superpowers that will lift out and rescue people from death and rescue people and intervene on their behalf. And that's fine. But if you're interested in a non-theistic or at least a different approach to spirituality, the foundation of Buddhist practice, and I think what makes it fascinating, is that it builds its views from the real foundational truths of existence, that there will be suffering in life and that we will die. And that actually creates the foundation of much of Buddhist thought. Awareness of death, as I said, is what makes human beings in any way special, along with our ability to connect with others. And in fact, it's interesting that right now at this time, we probably, as um, 21st century denizens, live with the least amount of meaningful acquaintance with our own mortality. In the time of the Buddha, Corpses were everywhere. There were open charnel grounds where the recently deceased would be left in the open, where their loved ones would go and sit and literally be with the corpses as they slowly were disintegrated. And it was written in the times of people sitting, literally watching parents uh, having their bodies being devoured by wild animals. It was something that was not hidden from view. And so people lived with a constant awareness. Today we hide the, or we immediately whisk the sick to <coughs> hospitals. The dead are removed to places where they are prepared and then are either cremated or embalmed or whatever the funeral procedure is. But we don't see the bodies really. We don't see death very often. And so when it happens, there can be this underlying belief that there's something wrong, a mistake, this shouldn't have happened. When we have this view, we might find ourselves when somebody famous dies, which unfortunately some wonderful people have died this year, uh, we might find ourselves looking and trying to figure out what did they die of to reassure ourselves that maybe we won't be so unfortunate? Because we have this idea that we should be immune to it. And all of this leads to a delusional state that we have guarantees that we're each allotted 80 years or 85 years and that we can take it for granted and that we can put off delay gratification. There's a, in the late medieval ages, a great, German woodcutter named Hans Holbein made popular a genre of woodcuts called Dance of the Death, and they were skeletons dancing with people who were alive to their grave. And in these woodcuts, death was depicted as this omnipresent figure hanging around daily life, where people shopped and people went to work and when people came home, and it was depicted as an everyday occurrence which could happen to anyone and was more a matter of an e if, a randomness than anything else that claimed people. And even though people look now at the skeletons in these woodcuts and they might think how quaint, I would propose that this view of death is far more realistic 
than the way that we now hold our own mortality at such a distance from our daily thoughts. In the New York Times bestseller list right now, there's an amazing book, When Breath Becomes Air. I've been reading it, and uh, it's about a guy, it was written by a guy who, um, Paul Kalinthi, who by the time he was 36, I think I wrote down, gotten degrees at Stanford for neuroscience and neurosurgery, Yale, Cambridge, and from one other. And when he was 36, he was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. He, the book is from the perspective of somebody who's deferred so much of their life with the expectation that they would be able to spend from 36 onwards saving lives, doing good, having children, and instead his life ended right when he was expecting it to begin. So it's not a, um, it's a beautiful book, by the way, and it leaves a wonderful legacy. So it's the truth. To not have it in our implicit belief, our daily underlying understanding of the way we relate to experience, that this could be it, is to not live in the truth. Now, the second quality of reflecting on one's death is that it's the single factor that makes any decision in our life authentic. To make any choice in our lives that's significant, where we're going to work, whether we're going to, where we're going to live, what, uh, what relationship we're going to put our efforts into, uh, the friends we keep, any significant decision we make, if we make it without considering our own mortality, I would submit it is not a truly authentic decision. Because, one, it's our own death that gives our life meaning. If we went on forever, if we were given immortal lives, then none of our actions would have any weight or meaning. We could simply act and act and act and act without any care, without any need to choose, without any weight or any significance, because we just go on and on and on and on. And there would be nothing to give any action, any real underlying value or any sacrifice or any heft. It's due to the fact that we make every endeavor in our lives against an ever-slippage of time, a dwindling amount of time, that gives any meaning to our actions. So to make a choice without considering the fact that this, is, this endeavor is literally going to be something that could be amongst my last actions, to make any choice without weighing against the, the very real possibility that we'll have far less days left than we suspect, than I suspect, is to live inauthentically. In fact, the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, arguably, uh, Martin Heidegger in his classic Being in Time, the focus on the text, amongst others, is when he posits that all people 
are being towards their deaths, whether they know it or not. And in being in time, he, po- he contrasts anticipating and waiting for death. Waiting for death, he says, is entirely inauthentic. It's the kind of activity where we simply spend our time without considering or living towards our death without knowing that, our, that each day is removing time and that we are moving towards our finality. So, anticipating one's death is instead that, that understanding, he says, that lifts us out of those mundane obligations that pile up, that can make our choices for us. The rent, the, you know, paying back the debts and all that. And all these things are very real. But if we lift those obligations above our existential truth of our mortality, if we are letting our, the situations of our lives define our choices rather than in any way bringing in fundamentally the facticity of our own death, then we're not being authentic and we're not making our choices from a transcendent perspective. We're letting the, uh, Sartre called it the thrownness of our lives, the fact that we've just been thrown into the world and we've accumulated responsibilities and, and obligations and a bunch of chores, and we're letting that make our important decisions for us. And if we do that, when we do reach our um, deathbeds, we look back on our lives and we increasingly find that we are dissatisfied with the decisions that we've made. There's, of course, the book, The Regrets of the Dying. And the most popular is that people let their work lives and their financial responsibilities and their performative needs to make other people like them get in the way of being honest and taking risks and putting aside the the part of them that wants to always look good to others and play by the rules without first asking themselves, is this something that will matter to me when I'm running out of time? The third quality of reflecting on death is that it allows us to really appreciate life. If we don't, if we just wake up and we view it as just another day, the chances are we'll spend that day unconscious. We won't drink it in. It won't have any magical, lasting moment. If I, and I've done this, I can tell you it's a vast difference. If I wake up with the, and I make sure that amongst the first thoughts I have before I get out of bed are, here's another day, this one could be my last. This day could be my last. I've had that in my practice. And I guarantee you the days I do that are the days that I always have something that I remember about them. But the days I don't do that, the days where I don't uh, have a Marana Sati awareness of death practice are the days where there's very little or much less appreciation. So rather than 
that old superstition that thinking about your death actually makes your death come sooner. It doesn't. There's no verification of that. Believe me, I've looked for it. There isn't. As somebody who not only has done hospice volunteer work, but knows a lot of hospice workers, none of them are subject to freak accidents. They're not tempting their own fate by acknowledging their own mortality. So, rather than being something that uh, either brings about fatality or even statistically shown people who reflect on death are actually by far and away more appreciative of their lives. It brings meaning to the moments when we just have this reflection that this could be it. When we carry that awareness in, it changes the, the, the tacticity, the realness. The, the, it brings back, you know, when we're young, how long days last. And it can make time once again stretch out when we bring that sense of appreciation, which is, I don't have any more. I don't have any guarantees of a tomorrow or a next year. There's a book by Noah's father, my friend Noah, who uh, his father, Stephen Levine, a great Buddhist teacher, just passed away, and he wrote a book called A Year to Live, where he recommended the spiritual practice of acting as if we've been given a diagnosis of a fatal illness, which has about a year left, and had people go about all of the things that they would do if they were given that diagnosis, and what the people who do that practice found and report is that their lives not only become far more meaningful, but they really appreciate the relationships that they have. They mend the relationships that have uh, fragmented due to unforgiven events. They go closer to the people that are important, and they actually undertake the actions that are creative that they've been putting on. Finally, it's to our benefit. There's a lot of studies. There was a study before and after 9-11 by two different psychologists, Martin Seligman and Barbara Fredrickson, where they did before and after surveys. And they found that after 9-11, where people, of course, had a far greater sense of their own mortality uh, in the forefront of awareness, there was notable increases in, I quote, kindness, optimism, gratitude, and teamwork. People suddenly, careers and financial security dropped way down on the list. Older people over 70 repeatedly score higher in present time awareness and in the ability to forgive. In a 2010 study called Being Present in the Face of Existential Threat, people were found to be not only more present time aware when they were faced with uh, severe diagnoses or living in areas that were very precarious, but they were far actually less um, opinionated and stuck in their views. They were far more willing to change their minds and listen to other opinions. One final thought I'll add is that the Buddha lived in a time when there was a lot of faith in what's called rebirth, and for people who really believe in rebirth, it's very tempting to use the idea as a kind of, of sort of uh, insurance plan 
well, if I get it wrong here, I get another, another, another swing at the bat in my next life. But actually, the Buddha taught to practitioners something very interesting. He said that your chance of being born again in the human plane is about the same as if you threw an inner tube into the ocean and once every 100 years a blind sea turtle raising from the bottom would surface with its head going through the inner tube. In other words... <laughs> I suspect, and it's pretty clear from the Sutta itself, that the Buddha is trying to say that even if, you know, there is rebirth, and he always, in many times, he would phrase that as question, but, and in other suttas he treated it as if it was certainty, but he never, ever suggested that being reborn in the human plane was actually uh, a certainty. In fact, there are many other planes and many of them are not so good. So I urge you to reflect on this life rather than postpone any of the spiritual work that gives meaning to life. So, when we go into the meditation, I like to encourage you to bring in an awareness that's as kind and compassionate as possible. When we bring awareness of marana sati or mortality into our practice, if we do it with a kind of a dry, clinical, or uh, detached, or a, a, a kind of critical mind, uh, it can be, it, it doesn't have the results. It's not supposed to be a practice that is in any way judging us or leading towards the conviction that we've been doing life wrong. The whole point of, of reflection on one's mortality in meditation is to simply gently help us reprioritize or look at our lives from a different perspective so that we can just, if we want, just recertify that the decisions we've made we feel good about. It doesn't have to lead to any sense that we're doing anything wrong or that we're making any mistakes. But it does provide, in my experience, a different perspective. So find a really comfortable seated position. And during this meditation, you don't have to, um, if you are experiencing any pain, you don't have to sit absolutely motionless. You can change your position but it, this is important. Do it in a way that doesn't create any distracting sounds that your neighbors sitting next to you will hear. So you can, if you find you're uncomfortable, change your position, but do it in a really slow, exceptionally quiet way so that you're not distracting from the experience of the people sitting nearby. Closing the eyes. And just uh, bringing awareness into this body. Your body.
If you notice that your head is floating in front of your chest, see if you can just tilt the head back a little bit like you're uh, the same position the head would be in if you were looking at something above the horizon. So just tilt the top of the head back, lifting the chin a little bit, so that we don't allow the head to, uh, or we don't slouch, which can create strain in the neck and the back. And just though the rest of the body, just let the shoulders relax and the arms to hang heavily. Feel the contact you're making with the cushion. So bring awareness now to the sensations in the body that let you know that you're breathing. See if you can put aside the conceptual idea that you know that you're breathing and just literally connect with those movements of swelling and contracting, expanding, releasing If it makes it easier to stay with the breath, just think in with the in-breath and out with the out-breath, or connect with the breath and count in-breaths and out-breaths, one on the in, two on the out, three on the next in, four on the next out, when you reach five on the in, then back down, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out, so you're counting from one to five and back down, with two and four always on the out-breath. Whenever you become aware that you've drifted away, just feel good that you're developing awareness and bring your attention back to the sensations of the body breathing. And just note how easy or difficult it is right now to stay with the breath without any judgment. Just get a sense of
whether your mind can relax into just being in a body, breathing, reconnecting with the incredible gift of life So getting a sense of how aware you are of the breath and how easy or difficult it is to be with it. And then I'd like you to add a very simple perception. Just I'll repeat it three times and if you can think it. One day this body will stop breathing. This breath could be my last. One day this body will stop breathing. This breath could be my last. One day this body will stop breathing. This breath could be my last. So just note, did the simple reminder that one day this body will stop breathing and that every breath could be our last, did that change the way you relate, observe? Did that change how easy or difficult it was to stay aware of your body and how it's keeping you alive. So letting go of keeping the breath foremost in mind and just listening to the sounds and keeping in mind 
a visual of what or how you remember the room to appear that you're in. If you want to open your eyes and close them, just remind yourself or just use whatever is in your mind. Feeling the level of energy in your body. How capable you would be right now to get up, move around. The energy in your mind, how, whether you could engage in a conversation or whether you're tired. So again, we're hearing the sounds, keeping the visual of the room, and just noting the energy that we feel in our body and mind. Now adding a very basic reflection. One day my sight will fade, my hearing will dissipate, and all the energy I feel will start to drain. My very way I'm experiencing the world will change. The world will become further away, less easy to perceive, the body more difficult to move with confidence. How does that change the way we appreciate this moment, these sensations, these impressions? letting go of that perception, and now a different perception, a different recollection, a different idea. If my body were to start failing right now, 
my liver or my heart. Some vital parts started to fail and I had limited time left. What choices have I made in my life would I be proud of? What have I done that I would feel esteem? What would I keep closest to my heart? What would bring me the greatest sense that my life had been well spent? Which choices, which experiences haven't I experienced? Would I regret? What priorities would I change? So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl to indicate the end of the meditation. When you hear the sound it'll be tempting to just open your eyes and look around. But if you do the stimuli of all the sights around the room and the thoughts that will develop from them will push away any insight that may or may not have occurred in the meditation and will also push aside any appreciation or connection with the body. So when you hear the sound, take the entire length, if you would, of the sound of the bowl to just slowly open the eyes and first look at the ground or at something uninteresting and just bring or incorporate sight into the rich sensory field that surrounds you so that you bring with you some feeling from the meditation into the rest of the evening. <laughs> 